0: Future Proof with
1: Jonathan McRae.
0: Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk.
1: Hello and welcome to Future Proof on News Talk. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. My name is Jonathan McRae. Coming up on this week's program, a new clinical trials center will be opened up in Ireland. Will that mean better access for patients to new medicines? And bad data. Why humans are not great at numbers? and why that can often turn to disaster. If you'd like to get in touch with the programme, you can email us, science at Newstalk.com. You can find us on Twitter, we're at Newstalk Science, or you can text us for 30 cent 53106. We get to all of those comments in the podcast. Listen and subscribe for free on the Newstalk app, powered by Goliad. Okay, it's uh, the beginning of the show. That means it's time to look back at some of the breaking stories from the world of science this week. We're joined by science communicator Catherine McGuinness and Dr. Shane Bergen from UCD. You're both very welcome. Our first story, Catherine, has to do with hibernation.
2: Yes, so the study here uh, is looking at torpor and hibernation in uh, mice and rodents, other rodents, and then looking at applications for this in the future for use in terms of surgery and also long-term space travel in astronauts.
1: So this is a study in mice um, that researchers have been able to induce this Uh, experience of of torpor what exactly is torpor what does it do to the body to slow it down
2: so torpor is uh, a short-term version of hibernation where the body temperature and the heartbeat lowers and then by doing this then the metabolism of the animal lowers as well now we normally see it in animals that are much smaller and don't hibernate for long periods of time so bats and mice And what this study did was it used ultrasound waves directed at the hypothalamus preoptic area in the brain, which is the brain, part of the brain that that induces torpor. And it, it actually induced torpor in the mice. And then they repeated the experiments again using rats because rats are not animals that normally hibernate or torpor. And they were able to induce the torpor in the rats as well. So what we're looking at now is can this be done to humans?
1: Mice and rats are, are induced into this sort of deep sleep, sort of like the the sort of thing we see when Ripley uh, goes to sleep in, in the alien movies, like this this long sort of low metabolism, not moving very often, not using a huge amount of energy, uh, just through using ultrasonic waves.
2: Yeah, directed at the part of the brain that would, would or originally have uh, induced torpor in the mice, for instance.
1: That's amazing. So do, do humans have... Um, uh, an ability to undergo torpor? Like, can we, do we know if humans even do this?
2: No, at the moment we don't. And the big question is, can it be done and then can we bring the person back safely? And that, <sighs> that, that's, that's more. Now, now the, the rats, for instance, um, they were able to... Um, monitor the body temperature. So they give them bursts of these ultrasound waves to keep them in torpor. Every time a te- the body temperature went up a certain amount, they would give them another burst to keep them in torpor. And they were able to keep them in torpor for 24 hours and then bring them back. And within 90 minutes, the animals were back uh, fully functioning. Now, whether that would be the same for humans, would it would take longer, th- there's a lot of questions about that. So we're not sure how a human body would react to this. And we're not, supposed close enough yet to start experimenting on humans.
1: Wow, that's very cool, though. Um, yeah, because we've talked about hibernation quite a bit on, on the program over the past couple of uh, weeks and months, and and whether or not it'd be possible. Because of course, the applications, as you say, uh, you know, long term space travel is is something that we need to figure out a way how we're, we're supposed to do that in an energy efficient way. If we can induce torpor and reduce dependence on water and food and energy, I mean, that would be that would be something else. But there are other medical applications as well, right?
2: Absolutely. Uh, For surgeries, for instance, and already uh, in some surgeries, we use a hypothermic state in, for instance, in heart and brain surgeries. And that has significantly increased the uh, recovery rate of the patients. Um, So again, this would have not just a a space application, but a medical
3: one as well.
1: Very cool. Um, Shane, our second story has to do with creating energy pretty much out of nothing.
3: Absolutely. So as everyone knows, we have way too much carbon dioxide and we just don't know what to do with it. And uh, so this is a fantastic study that's published in Nature Energy and it's from Cambridge. And this is a proof of concept, but it's really exciting. What they've done is they've taken carbon dioxide, added water and then sunlight, and they've turned that into a fuel, a simple alcohol. And that's absolutely incredible. Uh, Mm. And uh, people might think oh that sounds kind of vaguely familiar because that's sort of what plants do right they take uh, sunlight they take carbon dioxide from the air and they turn that into sugar which is uh, a complex carbohydrate and that's its food and that's how trees grow trees do not grow from the ground they grow from the air which is remarkable and sunlight helps them go and that's what's going on in this system and even though it's very, very small scale and it's low efficiency, this is the first time that we've been able to take carbon dioxide, add water, add light and turn it into a simple fuel.
1: When you burn that fuel, do you release the carbon dioxide? Yeah, you do. So there's there's carbon, there's
3: hydrogen and there's oxygen. In alcohol, and so when you start as chemistry, all chemistry is is making and breaking bonds. So as you as you do this, and you take the the complex alcohol, right, and break it up, chop it up, it's going to turn back into carbon dioxide. So it isn't um, it isn't fantastic from that point of view, right? And there are cleaner alternatives uh, out there, but it is um, it is interesting that it's as a proof of concept, a way of taking. Uh, carbon dioxide out of the air? What if we were to turn carbon dioxide in, uh, from the air into something that doesn't have a greenhouse gas effect? What if we could sequester the carbon dioxide from our atmosphere and store it in liquid form? Wouldn't that be fantastic?
1: I guess it would. But um, my, my question is, how do we make the liquid? Because, of course, energy in, energy out. When we think about systems uh, and and basic laws of physics, Surely a, a certain amount of energy has to go in to turn this carbon dioxide and sunlight into um, liquid energy. Is that is that the sunlight? Is that the, the source of our energy? So is this a, is this a positive system?
3: Exactly. So it, sunlight is the energy in, right? So it's, it's solar powered. Um, now, what, what this all hangs on, you kind of think, why hasn't someone done this before? The chemistry is complex. So they had to invent or create a catalyst which is something that can speed up a reaction, but doesn't itself get used up in the reaction. So it's a copper and palladium catalyst. So they're heavy metals. And by, by um, creating a catalyst with those two elements, they were able to make this reaction feasible so that more energy out uh, was was the, the, the consequence. And even though it is very low efficiency, this is a proof of concept. And the uh, Marie Curie fellow who's who's at the heart of this work in Cambridge, is extremely excited, as you can imagine, because it's the beginning of a whole new area of chemistry for them.
1: But but how scalable is it in the time frame we're talking, which is not a lot of time?
3: Um, that's a very good question, and I can't give you an honest answer. But I, I suppose that when there is a need, if you look at COVID, we were able to sequence a virus that was unknown to us and come up with vaccines effectively within a year and a half money, uh, if money is available for these things, then these things can happen at speed and at scale.
1: Yeah, but there needs to be a pressing concern, um, Shane. And, you know, looking around, it seems like nobody is aware of this pressing concern, or at least nobody, nobody acts like it's COVID. Um, Our third story, Catherine, has to do with allergies.
2: Yes, so this is um, a clinical trial, and it's been going since 2012. So this is the latest phase of it, and it's looking at using a skin patch uh, to administer immunotherapy on uh, young children who have a peanut allergy. So the study, uh, this particular phase of the study, um, there was over 360 uh, young children involved in the in the study, and the reason for this is because most. Uh, therapies at the moment. There's none approved for children under four in the US by the FDA and most of the pens that would administer any sort of medication to negate an anaphylactic shock um, it's generally that the needles are too big and there's a risk because we administer to the thigh. there's a risk that uh, in very small children the uh, medication is administered into the bone uh, which is quite dangerous so this is why we're looking at something other than what usually we would use for children in this area not only did the children become desensitised, a significant amount became desensitised, but also their tolerance actually rises as well.
1: That's amazing. Um, and it's, it, it's it's good because, it, you know, it can be life or death, rarely, but it it can be a life or death situation. So um, I know it's something that we've been, been, been talking about for quite some time. It's great to hear good results from that. Our final story, Shane, has to do with the arches in our foot.
3: Yeah, so we have weird feet when you look at us compared to other animals. We have these raised... You have weird feet, Shane. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, <laughs> the medial arch that we all have um, is what sets us apart from the apes. And it's thought that it's crucial to us walking on two legs. The fact that we walk on two legs is kind of sets us apart as well. The arch in your foot gives you the leverage. Um, in other words, it, it gets you going when you're walking on two feet. But it's been really unclear, perhaps until now, as to what the mechanism is. In other words, what exactly does the arch do? So, um, what happened in this study, and it's multidisciplinary, they found seven people who had different arch mobility and who were also willing to walk and run while being filmed by an X-ray camera. And then the scientists went and looking at the film, which of course could look into uh, the, the bones and muscles within the people's legs and feet, they built models to test the effect of the arch on the adjacent joints. And they expected to find that arch recoil, which is like, you know, we get a recoil in a gun, in other words, an arch, which is effectively a way of, of holding tension. And once it's released, it flips out and you can, you can use that then to drive something else. It was always thought that that arch recoil would help uh, as a rigid lever to kind of propel the body forward. Um, but that's not what they discovered they found that the flexible arch actually repositions the ankle upright for more effective walking and running. So it basically steadies up the the ankle. It puts it in a a more efficient position so that you can walk and run in a far better way. And one of humanity's greatest physical capacities is our ability to run long distances. Um, Again not us but uh, (laughs) now we have a possible mechanism for how the arch in our feet may have led to this. Yeah
1: very interesting well Dr Shane Bergen from UCD and science communicator Catherine McGuinness thank you so much for joining us. All right on the way a new centre for clinical trials is opening up what will it mean for Irish patients. Now, despite a booming medical device sector and the fact that Ireland hosts the European headquarters to 24 out of the top 25 pharma and biotech companies in the world, we do not attract our fair share of clinical trials here in Ireland. Clinical trials provide early access to cutting edge and potentially life-saving medicines and are sometimes the only hope of recovery for some patients. To improve our international standing and raise the overall quality and reach in Ireland, the University of Galway set up a new Institute for Clinical Trials. I'm joined by its director, Peter Doran, and also by Noreen Doyle, a patient advocate and parent who knows exactly how important these trials are. Peter, let's talk about uh, clinical trials in Ireland and why you set up this institute in the first place.
4: Thanks, Jonathan. Uh, I guess one of the things that uh, we've all recognised is that relative to other countries our size, that Ireland has a significantly lower amount of clinical trials that are ongoing. And this is a problem for our patients because what's become increasingly clear over the last number of years is that a health system that is research active, that has clinical trials ongoing, delivers better outcomes for patients. Yeah. Regardless of whether patients are in trials or not, we do better when we have a research active health system. And that's because a research active hospital is a place where inquiry and in is encouraged and there is a culture of asking questions. So it's important that we uh, grow the amount of research that we're doing in our hospital so we can ensure that patients have best outcomes.
1: We do an an extraordinary amount of medical research at University Galway, Trinity College Dublin, UCD, all of the the universities and many of the the third level institutions across the countries, as well as in centres. We do a lot of medical research. Why do we not have a lot of medical trials?
4: Yeah, it's an interesting question and I I think it's an evolving question. Perhaps in the past it was a question of scale. We're a small country, we have less to uh, contribute in absolute patient numbers. There's also been some challenges in terms of how we're resourcing uh, clinical research in Ireland. Traditionally, our health service doesn't have research as a component of its budget. Other uh, systems do. For example, in the NHS, the National Institute for Health Research, the NIHR, has a significant ring-fence budget for research at the coalface in uh, in hospitals. We haven't had had that, Uh, but what has happened over the last number of years is the Health Research Board and the universities have invested significantly. So there has been some kind of systemic challenges with getting uh, research uh, done. What's also happened over the last while is there's been kind of an an improvement in the uh, environment. Uh, We have regulation changes at European level that make it much more straightforward to do clinical trials. We now have a single unified National Research Ethics Committee system for the conduct of clinical trials. So the environment is improving, and I think we're now in a position where we can have that ambition to bring more trials and more clinical research to our patients.
1: Isn't it also true, though, that our, our data infrastructure in the country is not very uh, conducive to um, doing these trials? The fact that we we don't have a unique health identifier, which still boggles the mind um, yeah. for me so many years on, so many governments committing to it. Um, but also that we don't have a huge amount of registries who are collecting data that make us very attractive in that way. Tell me a little bit about... Um, how you're, you're hoping to overcome those sort of um, obstacles with this uh, new institute. Uh, and tell me a little bit about the sort of trials you're hoping to attract.
4: Yeah, so uh, so, so you're right. I mean, we're, we're significantly challenged by the, the, uh, the state of our data infrastructure. If, if we were competing, for example, with the UK for a, a trial, you'll find that they will get started faster and they'll be more predictable. Simply by having electronic health records they can tell before the trial begins how many patients they're likely to enrol. We can't do that. We rely on paper records. We rely on the understanding of our consultants on the front line to tell us how many patients are likely to be part of it. And the problem is, of course, that unpredictability means that uh, we're uh, we're we're always a little down the rankings in terms of being uh, being sites. What we're doing to address that, however, is we're putting a, a more concerted focus on the importance of that interface between the, uh, the university and uh, the healthcare system to ensure that we understand the system a bit better, we're working closer with them, and we get the populations. So the Institute will see a very close alignment between the University of Galway and the Sale to University uh, Healthcare Group. And that will uh, allow us to be able to more carefully profile the type of patients that uh, are available, the uh, interest of those patients in partaking in uh, in clinical trials. And right across the spectrum of activity from how we develop uh, new opportunities in clinical trials to how we deliver better trials uh, and indeed uh, a significant focus on uh, creating the trials of the future All of these actions will allow us to significantly increase the amount of activity that's ongoing uh, here at Galway, but will also, I suspect, help to uh, seed a
1: greater amount of trial activity throughout the country. Um, This is a conversation I've been having um, for for some time in a a podcast, um, uh, the Pathways to Personalised Healthcare, and so... Uh, we don't normally talk about the openings of centers here on the program we normally talk about the science so let's talk a little bit about about the research what, what are um medicines um, looking like in 2023 and beyond what is the future for clinical trials what sort of developments are we seeing and uh, and what will that mean to patients
4: yeah so 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 I think what we're starting to see now in clinical trials is is the use of a whole series of, other uh, advances in science to improve how we do our trials. So, for example, now in cancer trials, it's much more likely that patients will be enrolled into trials on the basis of particular genetic markers that they may have in their tumour or other uh, biological uh, markers that make them more amenable or more likely to succeed uh, in, uh, I- with therapy. So we're starting to see a lot more profiling of patients to match them to treatment we're starting to see much more of a, a focus on these, uh, a, as mentioned, biomarker-driven trials, where we measure things and we treat towards uh, those particular uh, markers. So that's that's a that's a, a particular area of focus uh, here in the University of Galway. Another area that we're significantly focusing on is in uh, medical technologies, partnering with some of the uh, the, the major academic uh, groups, but but also the commercial entities to see how we can. Uh, better use medical devices to, to treat uh, what to date have been uh, intractable uh, conditions. Uh, examples of that being, you know, work that has been re- recently been done on uh, renal nerve denervation in the treatment of, uh, of hypertension, uh, providing really significant outcomes for, for our patients. So one of the things that the Institute is setting out to do, Jonathan, is to make sure that we up the science in our clinical trials as well. Uh, both using uh, biological markers, but also this kind of merging of uh, biomedical engineering and clinical trials.
1: There's a lot of of talk about um, these personalized offerings, particularly in the area of healthcare and genetic therapies and so on. Um, As we get more um, focused on individuals, does that really extend the potential for radical improvement? I mean, uh, when we talk about these one- these single doses or single treatment medicines that have been tailored directly to the patient. are is, is the outcome typically worth it for that patient?
4: Uh, it certainly is. And it's worth it from a number of perspectives. we we got to think about this really in two ways. First of all, we're looking at the outcome for the patient, the therapeutic outcome. But we're also looking at the change in toxicity. So tailoring therapies to individual patients means that they're more likely to respond so they're not going to have to go through multiple different therapies, but they're also likely to have a more directed uh, treatment effect that results in less, less toxicity. So, for example, using immunotherapy drugs in cancer as opposed to cytotoxic chemotherapy has both changed outcomes spectacularly, but has also led to really, really significant improvements in the journey that
1: patients have when it comes to toxicity and side effects. And, and often these treatments are eg- extremely expensive uh, and, and that is why it's extremely advantageous to be having more clinical trials here in Ireland. Someone who knows uh, a, a, what it's like to go through one of these trials is uh, a patient advocate and uh, mum, Noreen Doyle. She is mum to uh, James, Kate, Adam and Alison. I suppose your story, from, I suppose from our perspective, Noreen, starts with, with James. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about his journey uh, his diagnosis and his clinical trial, please.
0: Hi, Jonathan. Yes. Um, so, as you said, mother of four. Um, when James James was born in 2004, he on his second birthday in December, he had become relatively unwell, nothing that any other two-year-old wouldn't be ailing with, snots and sneezes, the usual malarkey. But by January, he had become particularly unwell and... Um, he was diagnosed with um, ALL, the most common uh, type of childhood leukemia. Um, So his brother Adam was three and a half at the time, and I was actually five months pregnant with my next child. So to say we were knocked sideways is probably an understatement. Um, You know, there's so much talk about cancer nowadays, unfortunately, but kind of back then we were a family that, you know, it, it, it had never come into our into our our lives or, you know, it was something you really didn't talk about when you had young children because you were so busy with rearing your family. Mm. So we were completely knocked sideways. Um, So James started into his treatment straight away, pretty much in Crumlin. And, you know, lots of changes have happened in the meantime. But back then it was the old hospital. Um, You know, you were sharing a room with with another family. You were sharing a bathroom with maybe three or four families. But we didn't know any better. We were just grateful to be there. We were grateful um, to know that his prognosis was eighty percent plus. His age group, his gender benefited him in his treatment, and we were pretty much in hospital with him. I was pretty much in hospital with James for the first twelve months. He had four and a half years of treatment. Um, you know, he stopped walking. You know, they lose awful weight. It, he, you know, it was a really, it was a really tough time, um, but you're in it, you know no different and you believe that the team are saying to you, this is, you know, it's going to, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be okay. And it was, we were very lucky. Um, when James <clears throat> was about six and a half, he finished his treatment and we closed the door. We walked away. We never want to think about that again. He had started school. I had had another child in the meantime. So I now had two boys and two girls and everything was hunky-dory and we continued on our lives until my youngest daughter, Kate, almost exactly 10 years after James was diagnosed. She came home. I brought her, I had to bring her home from school one day. She was six. She was preparing for her first Holy Communion. It was April. Her communion was in May. She was particularly um, pale. Uh, She was starting to sleep during the day and my mother's gut kicked in immediately. And I brought her to my GP, my friend, whom I had also brought my son to 10 years previous. And she said, you know, lightning never strikes twice. You're you're hyper alert about this. And of course, why would why would she not say anything else? But we decided we'd go to Crumlin just to make sure. And within an hour, literally, because I went in that door and I said, hey, lads, I've been here before you know, can we just cut to the chase and do the bloods? I had Professor Owen Smith's number still on my phone and um, he had looked after James and I text him and he rang and once the the group in A&E heard him on the phone, everything was moved along very rapidly. And within an hour, yeah, Kate was diagnosed with exactly the same leukaemia as her brother was.
1: What was that like, Maureen? Like, like, that's awful. Jonathan. No parent should feel that.
0: Anger. Is the first thing I can bring to you. Right, I was like, this is just, this is awful. This is unfair, and the family. So now I have four, you know, three older ones. We, you know, at that age, life was hectic. My husband and I, we, uh, we had only started a second business. We were, we, uh, we work together in the business, and um, life was going. You know, life was going really okay, and then you're knocked back again, and it just felt. It felt unjust, but then the thoughts of what my daughter was going to have to code through based on what the experience had been with James. Now, that was the worst part, you know. You're looking at this beautiful little six-year-old who's preparing for her first Holy Communion, whom you know you think the next number of years are going to be just rubbish, especially a girl at that age, you know. But what we didn't realize at the time was, When James was sick, we entered him into a clinical trial, not knowing anything really about what we were doing, only that we were told, you know, you're told, you know, the the treatments, you know, it's as good as every, you know, they're going to get the best treatment no matter what. Yeah. But the results might help another family down the line. Yeah. And it, you know, it might help the quality of life or it might have exactly what Peter was saying. What we didn't know was that the patient would be his sister 10 years later. So the difference in the 10 years was unbelievable. Um, Kate cruised through her treatment. The period of time, it was halved. Kate was done and dusted within two years and one month of her treatment. Her quality of life was superior to her brother's. A lot of the really toxic chemo drugs that James had to take were eliminated because due to the results of the trials along the way, you know, the Things were just after improving dramatically. Mm. Um, They're like her quality. And I bring it down to this. And Peter had had referred to this earlier. There's one thing about getting them physically right. But it's getting them to cope through the period of the treatment and not allowing from a child's perspective, not allowing the cancer to rob them of their of their the joy of being a child. Mm. James was so young that he it probably worked out OK because he was so young, he didn't know any different. But Kate continued to do a lot of the stuff that she was already doing during her treatment. So it didn't stop her. Um, now, she had to roll it back a bit and we kind of had to keep her in, you know, and, and stop her from doing stuff more from my anxiety than the child. But the, the 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 development in the 10 years for us gave us, and there's only one word I can use on this, right? It gave us enormous hope. Mm. The minute we discovered that, because my anxiety the minute she was diagnosed was, oh my God, four and a half years, how is she going to be? She's going to be 10 or 11 by the time she's finished. and How is it going to affect her? All of these things rush into your head. And when we discovered the protocol that she was going to be on and the duration of it and the elimination of some of the very toxic chemo drugs. Mm. I was like, oh my god, you know, this this is a walk in the park. Yeah,
1: yeah. I, I mean, mm. when you hear that story and uh, and you know, you th- you think about the investment that we make in medical research in this uh, this country and just the importance of healthcare and what it means to families. Um, it you know, it cannot be underestimated. Uh, and you know, I'm not I'm not a real gushy person on this program, Noreen, but. <laughs> To, just to, to people like you who who sign up to to medical trials, um, not knowing what what it entails, I, I mean the you know the world owes patients like your your children a debt because they have have taken part in something that that improves Absolutely. the life of others better. So so thank you for that, um, uh, Peter. Uh, how important is the patient to, to, to wrap up in these trials? How important is that they're engaged, they're, they're informed? And, and what sort of effect do does patient involvement have in the success of a trial?
4: It's absolutely critical, Jonathan, for, for a whole series of re- reasons. First of all, having, having people like Noreen uh, joining us on our, our journey in University of Galway uh, is really important because she guides uh, our thinking uh, and reflects back the importance of what we're trying to do for families. They also uh, give significant input into the design of our trials, into uh, how trials work, how they can be made to fit with patients, because patients need to keep going and keep going with their own lives. And and what they also do, though, in a a very important way, in a very tangible way, is they remind us that we still have uh, a lot of work to do. Uh, There's progress that we need to continue making. The job is not done. Jonathan, I always use my own example. When when I was thirteen, uh, my mum was diagnosed with breast cancer, uh, and six months later she died. Um, if she had her diagnosis today, uh, her survival would be above ninety five percent. So the chances of her dying would be would be very small. Two years after that, my dad was diagnosed with a brain tumor, uh, and three months later he died. His outcome would be not much better today. So in some areas, we've made really significant progress through trials. In other areas, we have an awful lot of work still to do. So mm. I think the the patient voice is really, really important in continuing to drive us in these types of initiatives.
1: Well, it's it's great to hear um, uh, about the the opening of the Institute and the very best of luck with this. Um, that's Peter Doran, director of the Re- Institute for Clinical Trials at University of Galway and uh, patient advocate and parent, Noreen Doyle. Noreen and Peter, thanks very much. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks, Jonathan. Right, it's time to look back at some of your comments from last week and we spoke to Sarah Sabri who was the first Egyptian astronaut and someone says what are the requirements to make it to space, qualifications, etc.? It, it's very difficult to put a pin on that now. I mean, I think engineering or, or science, they have to be a strong part of what you do, but it needs to be a lot more than that in terms of attitude, There's psychometric tests and so on. With Sarah Sabri, I believe she was a part of a program that was run by Blue Origins that opened up space to more types of people, but she seems like a fantastic candidate. Uh, regardless, even though she wasn't chosen through the usual channels of the European Space Agency or or NASA um, vetting process. Uh, And uh, someone says, she strikes me as quite a young astronaut, are they usually not a bit older? She is quite young, and, uh, and look, The definition of astronaut here is someone who's been to space. This was a suborbital flight. But nonetheless, you go through all the training, you get on a rocket and you go into space, you experience um, weightlessness, you have the overview effect and view the planet from a distance. So, you know, uh, some people would say this is, you know, that's not an astronaut proper. I, I don't know. She seems to me to be made of the right stuff to coin the phrase. How many women have now been to space versus men? Well, it's not great, but I suppose given the fact that most of the human spaceflight was that that's happened, you know, by International Space Station was in the the seventies. It's unsurprising that 564 people have been to space, and 65 of them only have been women. That is improving hugely, and I think we see that both in the European Space Agency and in NASA programs, uh, which is exactly the way it should be. Another says it sounds like we all need to witness the overview effect. Have they ever tried to reproduce it and its effects on Earth? Interesting question. Um, so this is the idea that if you look at the moon, if you look at the Earth back from. You know, either the moon or, uh, or from suborbital flight, you get this sense of the importance and beauty of our planet and it just shifts your perception and your outlook in life, apparently. The overview effect is called, Sarah described it. Trying to reproduce that on Earth I don't know. That's an interesting idea. I mean, with VR, I just don't know if you would fully... I think you need to be fully conscious of the experience and for it to be really genuine and authentic, I don't know if recreating a, a simulation of that is really going to work. Certainly people who have pretended to be on Mars for a year to you know see how it has effects on our mental health, they have not <laughs> had the overview effect by pretending to be in space. So I don't know. I think it would need to be authentic. Right. That's it from us on on this week's Future Booth. Thanks uh, so much for listening. Thanks to Marais O'Sullivan, Simon Keane, Steve Daunt and Hugo de Silva on sound. We'll be back with more in your podcast feed on Tuesday. Have a great bank holiday weekend if you're listening at that time and stay curious.